This is Changeling the Podcast. Changeling the podcast. Come for the glamour, stay for the vibes. I'm your host, Josh, and with this is your host, Puka. Say hi, Puka. Welcome in, travelers. What are we talking about this evening, Puka? We are breaking into advanced storytelling techniques for changeling the dreaming. And advanced, I suppose, is a relative term, but really it's for any storytellers who have maybe run a session or five and just are looking for new ways to expand their storytelling technique repertoire. And to help us do that, we have a special guest, Fetch. Hi there, everyone. Pleasure to chat with you all here today. So yeah, Fetch. Is there anything you want to introduce yourself about? or? Oh, sure, yes. So I've been running games for about 20 years now. A few years ago, I found I had more games that I wanted to run than I could possibly do with my <laughs> home game. And so I bought a my first ever microphone, hopped onto Discord, made a server, and just started running games. From there, it's gone from me being like me and like three or four friends to me running for like 80 different people one time or another. (laughs) I have quite the list of games that I've put together. So I've had an opportunity to see a lot of different GM styles and player styles and games and rules. And when I saw the opportunity to jump in on this topic, I got excited. It just feels like a great way that I can contribute. Okay. I hope you don't mind if we qualify you based on all of that as a veteran storyteller slash GM slash DM slash whatever other term of <laughs> art. I am honored and delighted. Huzzah. So, uh, yeah, we're, gonna, we're covering a multiple topics here. And I think, Fetch, you wanted to go first with one. All right, so yes, I do have uh, a selection of topics that I want to go into. So I'm going to launch into it and feel free to like interject at any point with thoughts or questions that you have. I'm very excited. So first topic I wanted to get into is the topic of very mixed motleys. I think we all know the standard. It's either the Noble House or it's an Oathsworn Circle with some great quests. That's what I did when I ran my Changing the Dreaming campaign. Or a Motley Circle where it's just like, this is our situation. I guess we got to be in it together. All of those are fun. That's definitely where I would start. And I would also recommend you should you know try to keep everybody kithane for your first game of Changeling. Or the default for whatever game it is that you are running. That said, there can be a lot of fun with adding in other things. So, for example, in Changeling, the default is the Kithane. And you can even limit that just the Kithane at the front of the book. But at the back of the book are additional kits. Now, they have less detail written about them, but they each have their own little thing to the game. You could take one of the Lycians from the Player's Guide or play in anime, or go with any of the other kits from the player's guide, which there are many. And all of those, I don't think that most of the other kithane options make things much more complicated. But the further away you get from being kithane, the more you get into questions of, 
why is this person with the group? Why are they yeah. with the party? It's not, I, I assume you're talking about mixing between Kithane and these other groups or, or mixing between the, like you in theory could do like a Nunahade chronicle early on, but like all Nunahade would not have these problems, but you're talking about mixing, right? Correct. Yeah. Yes. Now there is a point to be made that doing an all game of anything, which is off the pace of the game is going to have some adjusted expectations. But yes, we're talking about where, you know, I want to be a Cluricon. This person wants to be a Hunko. Yeah. Right. That, <laughs> And what I really want to get talking to is one person says, I want to be a technocrat mage. And another person yeah. says, that'll go great with my Thalane concept. Oh, no. Maybe we should leave cross splat games for another episode. <laughs> That's I mean, even within Changeling, yeah. there's enough of these issues. I, th I don't know. I think it's pretty similar issues, but with some extra mechanic issues and stuff. I'll try to limit it to the ideas that I think yeah. apply universally, because I think the concerns are generally going to be the same. Mm -hmm. And then I'll get into examples. So I'll try to focus specifically on uh, dreaming-related stuff. So uh, as I've just hinted, the character concepts can get very wild. The aforementioned, you know, Clericon plus Mage plus antagonist faction of all the Kithane. So how do you do that? And when should you do it? And honestly, why should you do it is a good question. I really think getting to the why of it is important, first of all. One, you may just find that you've played a lot of the basic stuff that's in the game, and you're looking for something that's more of a challenge. And that applies equally to both a player and a storyteller. Like, gosh, I've run plenty of Chronicles of Darkness games. Maybe I would enjoy doing a Antagonist Faction one. I've run Mage the Ascension. Maybe I would enjoy doing, I did all traditions, but maybe I'd enjoy doing a game involving technocrats. They add different stories, unique stories, by, because oftentimes, even in the fiction, there's relationships between these groups. For example, in Changeling, primarily the Cathane are the ones that are the most populous and best known, but you have the Inanime, which last I checked are like, elder concepts like dreams of the natural world or in the case of i guess the mannequins maybe the more modern manufactured world how does something like that interact with changing how do you interact with the fact that they can only unleash you have the daunting which are ostensibly purely antagonistic because they kind of want to tear down the dreaming but what do you do if you have someone whose daunting concept is all about you know, not all Kithane are really nice people. I just want to, I just want to stop the ones that are preying upon people, or even a Thalane, would you say a childling ogre, because you just think that'd be fun, or if you want to do something like your unique take on a Spriggan, or even a redemptive arc with a Subvertal. So, having all these options can lead to some rich stories where you work out why are these characters together? How do you play off of traditional antagonisms? Can the modern age of characters look past the horrors of the past? This is true even within the Kithane themselves, where the she don't get to live like they did 800 years ago. That's just not their reality. Much to their own chagrin. Exactly. But then you have ones who've been like, you know, they rather like the modern world and they want things to be this way. And it's been literally hundreds of years since anyone's seen Thalane for the most part. And what happens if some of them don't want to be monsters or buck traditions? 
these are kinds of stories that I personally love doing. And also, honestly, sometimes it's cool just playing around with other powers. You know, somebody's going to be looking at Ruin and being like, ah, gosh, if I had that. That said, I think, if it's not obvious from the tone of my voice, it's very exciting to mix these concepts, but there are some things that you need to be careful about. One is going to be that political conflict. It's all well and good for me to say, hey, I'm going to allow everything. Kithane, Dauntane, and Thalane in my group. And I'm going to allow ones from anywhere in the world and from any origin. The problems you might run into is there's a lot of political conflicts. Take a more localized one to Kithane. My understanding is like there's different kingdoms of the Kithane. Like I'm familiar with Concordia because that's the only thing they really write about. But I know that there's other kingdoms that are like, I get you have this whole King David thing you're concerned about, but that's not really our thing. So he's gone. He's back. What do we care? You need to be able to resolve something like that if you're going to play as someone who's not local to your primary area. If you play as something involving like a Thalane, you have to deal with the fact that the Thalane and the Kithane for generations were at each other's throats and... That's kind of what the Tuatha and Fomorians had in mind. Even if your individual characters want to push back against that, how do you deal with the difficulty of making legacies compatible? How do you deal with the fact that if, you know, your local duke sees that you've got a couple Spriggans in your motley, they start asking uncomfortable questions? And if you have a daunting in your party, you know, how do you deal with things like... Well, Dantians have really dangerous curses. <laughs> Getting into all of that would be far longer than I think the podcast episode itself would allow. So I'm going to go over some generalities. One is that you can smooth over things. You might downplay the nature of the Dantian curse. Or you might allow a Thalane who gets to pick a Seelie legacy instead of having to go, I think, unseelie and Nightmare. Or let the Dante use the standard childling, wildling, and grump rules rather than the sometimes prohibitively dangerous ones that the Thalane have to come with. I'm reminded of uh, Chronicles of Darkness, where playing Promethean, Prometheans are people who generate natural fields where everybody hates them and the world gets corrupted. Disquiet. Disquiet's amazing, but the general rule is, you know what, just downplay it. Same thing with changelings mixing with other things. It's probably not fun to just say somebody's playing the party mage and they have to get a reminder every in-character session that these are their four friends. <laughs> just say, hey, if you get to really know them, the Dawn says, don't worry about it, guys. It's fine. This, this one mage can remember you. Or look for books that address these things. I know there's a couple mage books that... I forget the two. It's Fairy of Faith and One Others, the Book of Minor Spheres, I think, that get into things like, hey, what if you want to mix things up? So look at material like that. I will shamelessly include links to those two books. I can't say who wrote hey, them. Hey, you only wrote uh, one as, of those. <laughs> as you should. Another thing is talk about how the political situation area might be different. If it's a gigantic kingdom and you want to say that there's a bogart in the group you know that may never really come to the attention of a larger changing community 
in the dreaming game I ran, one of the NPCs was a, I think it was a Bogart. Which are the ones that like hide under your bed and they're really shadowy? Mm, uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Them too, I guess. Point is that there was a Thalane which everyone thought, oh, that's just a Slua. And it's just like, no, she's not. But all she does for feeding is eat on the nightmares inside of people's dreams and wants to have a nice community. So maybe she doesn't bring it up. Maybe the Motley wouldn't really care if it came up and they don't bother telling anyone else or even playing to the hypocrisy. In my game, House Baylor was in control of the Unseelie faction and... You know, they would low-key use ogres and make alliances with the occasional Thalane. My point is, you don't have to go hardcore for the antagonism. You need to think about it. But you can both adjust the rules and downplay or adjust the political situation to serve your interests. I could go on, but I'm curious, like, what thoughts or questions do you guys have on that subject? It's something I've done in... Every changing game I played in has had some players doing something like that. And everyone that I've run has had players doing something like that. Like I've done mixed mage and changeling. I've done a few different things with mixed Thalion and Kithane and other stuff like that. So yeah, I find it's not really any harder than going with like, I mean, there's some rules questions that can come up and things like that, but like from a, how does it make sense? It's not really been that much worse than like okay how to explain your noble seely she and your unseely very common or red cap right like that's a bigger <laughs> deal potentially than like well everybody here's a family and one of the kids is an ogre that's not see i must be the hard ass exception that proves the rule because i almost never have games like this oh, okay. but i think that's because i mean when i put together a changeling game which i haven't done for a while unfortunately I think the reason why I'm always kind of down on going too far with the mixing, part of it is because I'm always of the opinion that there are enough interesting stories to tell with like a single group of kiths. Like, I almost feel like people want to bring in a Xian or an inanime sometimes because they think it's going to take the story in a radical and new unexpected direction. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I don't think we need that necessarily to take the story in a radical and unexpected direction. And if I, in the exchange, have to figure out how to make the mechanics fit together and the motivations fit together, I'd rather do what's the easier lift for me to construct a story. But, you know, I understand, too, that people do see all of these kits and think, oh, it'd be so cool to play one of those. And I'm not here to, like, yuck anybody's yum about that. That being said, I think that if you do allow it and you do get members of wildly different groups... Be careful about how you thread the needle in terms of why they're part of the Motley or part of the O Circle. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of players want to be the one Thalane in the entire dreaming, the entire world, yeah. who's good and who's a team player. And it's a very sort of, you know, Mary Sueish kind yeah. of thing. I see where you're coming from. I haven't encountered this personally. It's more than like, oh, this looks cool. And I'm like, oh, I can make that. Like, I do think every Chronicle needs a theme or a yeah. focus. Yeah, if it fits, then. Yeah, and that's yeah. the thing. Like, it has to fit. Like, I wouldn't, yeah. Th- those are two good points, which I think we could summarize as one. If you have somebody who wants to play an unusual concept, it should fit with the campaign frame that yes. the group wants to yep, tell. There he is. The second one is, if you're going to play someone from an antagonist faction you need to make them fit without it overriding the story. So mm-hmm. 
figure out how you are going to play someone who is not going to be disruptive, either because your character acts very strangely or because they would have an outsized effect on the story. One of the, one of the ones I did with Thaline was because the Kithane were pretty close to being Thaline in behavior anyway, so that worked. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> yeah. Thaline do get along with each other. I'd also suggest, though, that you can, especially if you're a storyteller who has never dealt with this kind of stuff before. Oh, yeah. You know, ramping up to it is possible. Like, pay attention to how characters would differ on the basis of whether they're silly or unsealy, or whether they're child and wild yeah. or grump, or whether, you know. So, like, there are already other axes of difference within even just like the core kithane. So yeah. pay attention to those, explore those dynamics, and then take the leap of saying, okay, if somebody wants to play a insert random kith that only has like a paragraph right up, then yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, you're a river hag in this game. Right, exactly. <laughs> that one has bigger issues because what's like a ghillie do? That's right. sort of the issue. Like, or actually- but there's, They all have their own issues. With but you're like stuck to your location kind of problem. Whether you're going with someone like a Selkie in the prairies or just like fouling with their unusual rules, mm -hmm. I think the important thing is like you as the storyteller should know what you're getting into mm -hmm. and so should that player. I think the whole group should be involved in like this. 100%. Too. Yeah. Like if it's like, no, you shouldn't be, be requiring, for instance, somebody who's like, this character really would hate Thalane. It does not make sense to have any Thalane here. Um, shouldn't have that in the same game as a Thalane, right? <laughs> so. so if you do have characters that maybe don't get along, one option is to send them in different directions. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that's what I was going to bring up as my first topic here is. So it's about splitting the party intentionally, as in how to run scenes where not all the PCs, even though all the players are here, not all the PCs are in this scene. And that's a thing a lot of, a lot of gamers don't like. <laughs> Again, this is advanced techniques. It does take more work and more consideration, but I think there's good reasons to want to. Um, sometimes it just feels really convoluted to have everybody hang out together whenever they do anything of note in, in scenes, like why would everybody be there? That doesn't fit real life. That doesn't fit any storytelling. Like I've never seen any TV show, never read any book, never whatever. We're like, everybody's always hanging out together and anything <laughs> notable happens. It's, it's great that we get along, but I don't think all of you need to come along on every date I go on. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, so you can do things like actually have musing as part of, or things like that, like scenes, you're not gonna have the whole party show. That would, that would be awkward, right? You know, there's all, there's all sorts of reasons people want to do different things, right? You know, and then like all the kids, like, you know, there's like the slew of tea parties. You're not gonna have like the troll there necessarily. Right? So I think, I think there is reasons to want to do it, but there's obviously concern about it. So, and, and there are things you have to adjust. One thing that I've found, at least for me, that's really important is what I call like panning the camera or jumping between scenes. What you don't want to do is just have, you say, five people in your game, three of them just sit there watching while two of the player characters get to play for an hour. Don't do that. So one technique that I find helpful is like every five to ten minutes, roughly, jump between different scenes that different characters are having. Which, yes, means like if one character wants to do everything and another character doesn't do very much, you have a problem, but that's a, another kind of issue. But uh, yeah, ideally, and these don't have to be at the same time. So it's not like you're concluding a scene. It's like you have a scene here and it's like soap operas actually are a good example of this. You watch daytime soap operas. I'm not saying there's 
to do everything like a daytime soap opera, but this is one thing where it's like people are talking for a bit and then it jumps to another place where other people are talking and then other things are happening over there. The time doesn't have to be in sync. This doesn't even have to be the same day that these two scenes are happening. But you want to avoid where they'll have continuity with each other. Like, for instance, you, you don't really want to have one character that's in multiple of these scenes jumping around at different times because that will get weird chronologically. You didn't script this. Time shenanigans get used to creative uses of Kronos. Yes. Oh. Outside of that, but just... <laughs> so you don't, And you don't want to have, like, one scene is reacting to the other scene that you're doing. Like, if it starts to get to that point, okay, maybe you need to, like, break the scene, jump in, resolve something, then go to the other play, the other scene. Another thing that can be helpful, you don't want to always have to do this, or always do this, but sometimes there's, like, NPCs here, and if the players are up for it, you can be like, okay, in this scene, you can play this NPC. Works for conversational scenes, goes for more action-oriented things, we're fighting, whatever, all that type of thing. One thing you do want to do, I find, is make sure all your scenes are wrapped up by the end of the session, like, as in, the scene's over by that point, or else it gets really confusing remembering next game, especially if somebody doesn't show up or something like that. So try to wrap up everything even more than normal. I think that's important there. And you don't want all your scenes to always be split necessarily. There's some role-playing games that are designed around that, but Changeling, potentially you'll have them more show up sometimes in scenes together. But yeah, that's sort of my basic pitch, and it's worked well for me. That's well said. If you think that the group is going to be regularly splitting up, you want to make sure that fits the concept that you're going for. When I run games, I try to have as many of the characters in any given scene as I can. And I try to make sure that the majority of scenes feature all the characters. Or that if it is going to be something that features just a couple characters or even just one, that we limit how long that scene is going to be. Like, I think like mm-hmm. 15 minutes is hmm. yeah. plenty. But that's why I'm suggesting jump. Like, yeah. I wouldn't even go 10 minutes without jumping through. back to the. Yeah, yeah. And having some other. So that's, I mean, it's also a way you can address things like downtime and stuff and actually have it at the table. What kind of campaigns do you think work well with a team frequently splitting up? I don't know what you mean by types of campaigns. <laughs> uh, sorry, like <laughs> adventures or, or stories. Like, can you think yeah, of yeah. anywhere it'd be fun to say like team A is in Phoenix, team B is over in you know, I tend to do very personally centered around the like character driven stories, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, think about like TV show where it's plot driven versus character driven. I'm more like I want my role playing games to also be very character driven. And that also lends more to you know, these sort of split scenes and stuff. It's not all about just banding together to solve a quest or something. I think you can find a happy medium, though, between them. Because if you do something like Mission Impossible, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a very action-oriented, step-by-step kind of story. Mm -hmm. But you might literally have every single character in their own place doing their own thing. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I have some thoughts on what to do with longer-term stuff. But that is for a different section of this. Mm -hmm. How about you, Puka? Do you have any experience running split party things? Do you know, when you were talking about panning the camera, what I actually thought of was in the recent uh, Trinity game that I played in, shout out to Scott Cuban of Simulacra Studios. I can't remember if the Trinity core book explicitly suggests doing this, but often what Scott would do is actually say, we're going to cut over or the camera suddenly moves to. So that style of narration, I think, mm-hmm. facilitates players' willingness to go along with that. And you can kind of drop it in if a scene is kind of going on longer than you want it to and you feel like other people aren't getting enough attention, you just say that and it's like saying, 
pause, let's go over here, mm -hmm. in the same way that you want to have the dynamics of your game be clear to the players if they're doing mixed splats, you want to have the dynamics of the narrative structure, how narrative is being handled, you want that to be clear to the players as well. Depending on whether, on the pacing of the scene and how long it's going for, for switching like that, I like to use a half breath or full breath technique. So full breath would just be me taking a little inhale, exhale, and being like, well, you guys are figuring out what you're going to do to break into the record studio. Right. <laughs> Let's go back over to these two and see what they're currently up to. We don't need to have the player conversation to hash this out in real in-game time. Mm -hmm. 100%. But speaking of time, and in particular downtime, I don't know, is yeah. that too clunky a segue? Is that, does that work? <laughs> you know, we're going to take what we can get. This is yes. This is all mostly unscripted. We're figuring it out. Um, That's the best way. I feel. <laughs> That's right. So downtime indeed. So uh, what is downtime and what does the game already say about it? If you look in downtime in Changing the Dreaming, they have a section where it's basically any time when you're not following the characters turn by turn. I think that's a bit of a strict definition because I don't think any of us do turn by turn except in combat. Well, you're not rolling every three seconds for your social <laughs> interaction. <laughs> obviously, obviously I should start doing that if I'm, if I'm reading this right. I think we'd have some very different campaigns. But the game talks about doing it for stuff like mental feats, like your character researching something and going through a library. Or ravaging just that one epiphany i don't know why that's the only one they mentioned using downtime for <laughs> okay sure what i'm really interested in talking about is between chapters downtime you have your four-hour session and your next session is a week or two weeks from now what do you do in the meantime well you could just chill out do your own thing and then come back in a week or two or you could talk about your characters do during that time down. So this lets you do things that you can't really do during an adventure. Like if I say, hey, you know, my character wants to go talk with a bunch of people involved with the, the dukedom and figure out how we got in this awful situation. And it's not immediately relevant to the situation at hand, which is about facing the dragon Fafnir, which has shown up and is destroying everything, you might go, let's do that for like a downtime, something between sessions. Or I want my character to go on a, to go on a date. And it's like, what does that have to do with the main adventure? Nothing. It's just character building. Same thing for players who want to get together for a scene. Two characters had the same experience with, you know, trying to connect with dreamers or having a near-death experience in the dreaming, or both dealing with being Arcadian she, or just being, you know, Cathane and Thalion coming something from different angles and they want to talk. That could be half hour, hour, two hour plus conversation. And we don't really have time for that in the middle of a game session. So the benefit of Between Chapters Downtime is that you can play out those things, whether they're just long conversations or long-term projects. way I like to handle this is through something called side scenes. In my Changing the Dreaming game, I ran it through Discord. We had a main channel 
for a general conversation out of character about the game. It had a dice channel, had a voice channel, and then it had a role play channel that had threads. And whenever somebody wanted to play out a conversation between like them and the Baron of Phoenix or their character and their best friend Dreamer, we would start a side scene, just a little role playing thread. Somebody sets what's going on and they just go back and forth through text. You can let players do it themselves. They can do it with GM controlled characters. You don't have to be an active participant as the GM. The challenge of doing this is like with splitting the party, you have to be careful to make sure that this doesn't run into real-time issues. So that means that players need to be on top of the messages or whatever's happening needs to not have a significant impact upon what's happening. So, for example, if a couple of the Motley mates are going to go on a date together and they play out a few posts and then the next session comes up, you'll have to keep in mind that if they're going to continue the date scene, that's something which is happening temporally before that in continuity. Or if it's something time sensitive, like, hey, my character wants to get this information about the Baron by first talking to his subordinates, and that's going to affect what I do next session. And then, you know, the Baron's going to be there next session. You want to know what the Baron's going to think about that party member and what that party member's going to think about the Baron before we get there. Otherwise, you have this hanging scene that you have to resolve. Two ways to handle that. One, if it's something that gets to a point of interest to the group, you can handle it at the beginning. For example, saying that, hey, I want my character to have a conversation with the unseelie baron of the area about getting his support for an upcoming event. And then a couple days into playing this out of character, one of the players is like, I can't do the scene right now. Something big came up. When you get to the actual session time, you might actually play out the remainder of that conversation. Another way is just doing reminders, telling people like, hey, you know, try to make at least one post a day on an ongoing conversation or pinging them if needs be. I like to pace my downtime with real time. In my games, the way this works is, let's say that the three of us were playing a game here tonight and I start a story about defeating a dragon and then we play for three sessions and then have another story after that. What I would probably do is say, hey, in game, this story begins on the evening of Wednesday the 19th. And then we play out the three sessions. And then when the next story begins, I say, okay, you know, in game, defeating the dragon took two or three days. It was done by the 21st. When our next story begins, it's picking up on our next game day session, uh, Wednesday, August 9th. And all the time in between then is downtime. I find that's fun because it adds some uncertainty to how much time is happening in between stories. And also lets you get some breathing room and do some fun stuff, such as invoke things from the Book of Days. I, I use that book a lot during my own campaign, where I would say, well, the next story takes place three weeks from now in character. And oh, look, that happens to be on the day that... All the freeholds open their doors and let anybody in. Let's make the next story be about you guys going to the Unseelie Baron's 
Christmas party and playing that out. What are your guys' thoughts? Did you have a calendar open or did you just know the dates of those Wednesdays from some Kronos level time <laughs> Just out of curiosity. By now it could be either, but no, I pop up in the calendar on my computer. All right. I think of this, I'm, I'm forming this weird meta discretion of role-playing games. It doesn't describe all role-playing games, but there's, there's definitely this, like this axis or two poles that I think of as tabletop and LARP. Hmm. But that's probably terrible names because both could happen online and, and there's like fluctuations, there's like degrees between them. Your approach reminds me a lot from like playing and running in Mind's Eye Theater LARPs where it's structured a lot more than that. Like you do have the each session sort of, it's like if you play every week, it's like, well, in game it's every week in between sessions. And then there's a lot of downtime and there was a lot of online downtime stuff even back in like 19, like, even in the late 90s, it was had a lot of online so yeah, and there's techniques, there's actually rules and things like that from the various Mind's Eye Theater books that actually people might find handy for downtimey actions and stuff like that. Personally, for the more tabletop-focused games, I'll, I like having everything happen in the session, but I mean, the way you're doing it's also valid. I think, I think for that approach, those are good techniques. I think they're definitely, in Changeling in particular, but then each game probably has its own couple of things where this is the case. To go back to... <laughs> I know Ravaging is the only epiphany that's officially listed, but I think any epiphany can work as a side scene. Yeah, what's the musing one called? I can't remember the official Reverie? name of that. Reverie. Yeah, Reverie, I think, is the one that needs it the most. Well, like, for sure, yeah. So yeah. when I was on my first ever Discord open world play-by-post game back in lockdown, which was a vampire game, if you had the herd background, it allowed you to do, for each dot that you had, one self-written hunting scene per week you didn't have to like contact a storyteller to do a hunt scene or anything and you got some of the blood you needed out of that because in the game every day that passed you went down one blood point and i had so much fun writing those but i imagine like in a changeling game you could do the exact same thing with dreamers if you had a discord Mm -hmm. game and you said okay for every dot of dreamers you have in your little private channel or whatever just write a vignette about you continuing the amusing relationship you have with your dreamer or going ravaging or whatever. Mm -hmm. And even if it's a solo scene, I think it drives up player engagement to a degree and it gives the player context for how their character might behave in other scenes with other players. And this absolutely really depends on the storyteller, Mm -hmm. like what you are comfortable with, what you have the time for, what your inclination is. If you're doing these kind of things, you will be doing a lot more than just running your game every week or two weeks or whatever and prepping between it. You're running your game all the time, kind of. And that's awesome for some people. And for some people, that's too much. And maybe you need to set up life boundaries. I feel attacked. (laughs) Yeah. I'm with you there. I, I think I have sometimes have the issue of giving myself too many games to play in and run a week. Yeah. And also doing uh, downtime scenes. It's a lot of fun if you like to stay constantly engaged. Yeah. But the reason this is an advanced technique is you've got to make sure that you have the time to manage something yeah. like this. If you don't, don't do it. Yeah. And, and also, I've never had experiment with this before. I've run into another problem where it, like, I had like five players. Two of them really liked it. And the other three had, would only show up to play, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't work so great, too. I usually bribe people with experience points. Yeah, but that only... <laughs> if they don't want to... Well, 
if they or they don't have time in their life like i think that's fair it's like i just want to show up and play the game and maybe i'll read something in between but i'm not gonna like yeah. play in between the sessions and like that's valid yeah i feel like don't force it but let people mm-hmm. engage at their own discretion yeah i recommend keeping them public because if it's a private side scene then yeah only those players can see it and mm-hmm. it can be hard to refer to but I'd say, like, if you've got, like, one or two people who don't want to do it and then two or three people who are really engaged, that does become, like, a conversation of, hey, these three are going to be getting more stuff going on. Is this going to be an issue? It's definitely something yeah. that you need to monitor. It's a thing to discuss in Session Zero, I think. Yeah, go back and listen to the Session Zero episode and possibly the Storyteller's Guide episode if you are still uncertain mm-hmm. about a lot of these techniques in your game and want some more overall guidance. Yeah. In the spirit of the maximalist ST style and kind of connecting to both downtime and uh, splitting the party, I think, I'd like to talk about, (laughs) I guess I'll say it's my method. Um, And I call it interweaving, but I'm sure there's probably some much nicer, fancier term for it. But it's the way that I think of weaving together sort of the main plot, the overall story of the Chronicle that you want to put together and the individual character arcs that each player has all kind of wound through each other rather than railroading everybody into like a single story. And some people, especially if someone is new to a game, sometimes they prefer that. But for anyone who's played a few sessions of a game, generally I think it's good to encourage them to start thinking more about their character and their individual growth. So I think you have to plant the seeds for doing this really from session zero, from character creation. And I know that When we've talked about that before, we talked about the different establishing questions that you can use to get people to think about beyond the dots on the sheet. So good ones that I've encountered include things like, what's one thing you admire and one thing you resent or dislike about each of the other members of your motley? That's predicated on them all knowing each other to start, but I think it's a good one. You can also say, who are three mortals you have the strongest connection to? Another shout out I'll give to Terry of the Mage the Podcast, our sister podcast, who ran a mage game that I was in. And I was playing a pre-gen Euthanatos character, I think, a death mage who also grew up working at a funeral parlor and had this very deep connection with bodies and ghosts and everything. And I kind of narrated through a couple minutes of how I saw the character and Terry nodded and nodded and then said, what's your term of art for these dead? And it, it caught me so off guard, but just without even thinking, I said, the departed. And it was exactly the right answer for that character. So I think if you listen to the way that your players describe their characters, often a question like that will just kind of issue forth and it helps both of you get a much more pinpoint idea of who that character is beyond just this is their splat, this is their kith, this is their scene. I like the aspiration system from the story path games like Trinity, where You have two short-term aspirations and one long-term. But I think if it's not hitched to experience points or anything, if it's just an open-ended, here are my aspirations, it's more incumbent on the storyteller to pay attention to those, which I think is more the case for the World of Darkness games. I don't know, do either of you have questions that you like to ask during a session zero about characters that like set the scene for future things you might throw at them? Oh boy, do I. (laughs) It depends. It depends on the game. Are either of you familiar with the game called Beast the Primordial? Mm. I have not read it, but I'm familiar. Uh, I've I've heard podcasts of people 
lament it. For good reason. It We won't get extensively into the history of it, but it is a game which the first couple of drafts, shall we say, were problematic. They've subsequently fixed some of the issues, but it's still a game which has some difficult and more advanced elements that can make it a challenge to run. And this is, I swear, going to tie into your point about like, what do you do during okay. a session zero? <laughs> so basically you play as a normal person who has a monster stuck inside of you and it affects your behavior. But to really bring that home for the players, I just said, hey, you know, I've got five questions about there between your character's horror, the monster inside of you, and you as a person. And that really helped them, you know, bring mm. to life that character. But I don't think I have like a standard set of questions other than like, what are your lines and veils? Mm. Yeah, that is something I think I should look, work on more next time I do a session zero. Uh, most of what I focus on is just character relationships and just discussion of like, what do people expect from this chronicle? which includes safety tools well but i remember also you talking about the game where was it you had a character i forget if it was their character's mother or their player's mother or both show both. up as an auto both. person <laughs> oh no no sorry that was different oh no i was playing in that game oh, okay and that was one of the st it was a larp and one of the sts showed up as my character was a childling and uh right. showed up as the autumn person and it was set out of freehold that session that was extra so I think things like that, if you, from the start, get your players thinking about mortals they're associated with or personal connections they have, they give you NPCs that you can work into the story and or you mm -hmm. know give you moments of narrative reflection that yep. you can do with the player as a side scene. Actually, that one came out of a bunch of downtime scenes. That there you go. Had a little, little echoes in play and it finally just blew up and... Nobody but my character had any idea what the heck was going on, and it just completely overturned the entire Which is county. great. And that's a much more narrative way of doing that than looking at someone's sheet and saying, okay, you've got this background or this merit or this flaw. I'm going to work that yeah. into the plot, which you should still do. But Yeah, this this one came out. It wasn't even like from the character sheet. It came out during play, too. So Yeah. Ask them about what's on their sheet. Like if someone mm -hmm. lists, you know, dreamer five or resources five or yeah. gosh title five be like um anything okay. an enemy flaw <laughs> yeah and any flaw like why does your character have chimerical magnet mm -hmm. you know don't don't come at them harsh about it but ask those questions because sometimes it helps them develop it sometimes it gives you awesome ideas also yeah. why did you want that yeah right like what are you hoping to see from that too yeah so all of that and again, going back to the maximalist style of storytelling, you really have to devote a lot of time and attention and planning as a storyteller if you want to follow up on this. But those questions to me are the root of the individual character arcs that you want to find ways to bring to the forefront from the main story that you're telling. In between that, you can also have kind of like the side plots, you know, the B plot, the C plot. So if two characters are going over here and two are over here and another one is solo over here, you know, you need to have some kind of middle ground between the overarching narrative and the individual paths that each of them are following. I do think those you can plan for less. I think they'll arise more organically in the course of the game. Plan your main story on your own, by all means. The big events, the big enemies, whatever. Let your characters take the wheel or 
whatever driving metaphor when it comes to plotting out where they want their characters to go and then you step in and determine how much of that's actually going to come to pass and then from the dynamics between those two levels you get these side plots and this knocker finds out that the Boggan has this secret dream to sing on the stage and the Thalion character discovers that the reason that this random Selkie who joined the party hasn't talked in the entire time they've been there is because they left their tongue in their skin that some dude has. Like, you know, so all of these sort of aspirations and secrets and deep hidden things that the characters have, they're also there for the characters to find out about each other. I find flowcharts to be helpful for this. <laughs> I find taking notes to be helpful for this, having relationship maps, those kinds of tools, or just cheat sheets of the traits that are most significant for each character, not only for your players' characters, but for the storyteller characters as well. I really like having extensive bios for my big deal NPCs because it gives me a sense of how, when one of the characters encounters them, how they're going to react. I want to at some point get a, I've never pulled this off for an in-person game, but like have a cork board, mm -hmm. red string. Precisely. Like all yes. I, yes. Uh, I wound up with one of those at one of my games uh, entirely by accident. Just they kept meeting new people and drawing lines between them. And I got the players involved in it. And, you know, it was a complicated mess by the end of it, but it was a fun one that made the world feel alive. Yes. But you also have to be comfortable with leaving loose ends of that red string yep. because you're not going to have time to follow up and complete every single thing that arises. If I had to put like numbers on each of these things, I would say your main plot line that you're trying to drive forward should probably take up half of the time, individual arcs, probably a quarter of the time, and then side plots a quarter of the time with the individual arcs, maybe, well, depending what kind of group you have one taking precedence over the other. I tend to have like the main plot take 10% of the time. <laughs> or that. One thing I like to do is try to make the players' individual plots or the side plots become part of the main plot. That's yeah. a technique I got from mm -hmm. Masks, A New Generation. So you might yeah. do something like your first story might be, hey, this one player took Living Legend, their reincarnation of a knight. And this other person took Chimerical Magnet. What if I told a story where a bunch of dragons were coming and were hunting down the character with Chimerical Magnet, but that also happens to be part of the legend of the other player character who was a legendary dragon slayer? You mm -hmm. instantly have a story which mixes the two of them. Yeah. Yeah. I think I first encountered that in Dresden Files RPG too. I never got to play that game. I like made a character for a game that was supposed to happen, and then it never did. It's Alas. one of those World of Darkness like RPGs, right? Yeah. Right there. <laughs> well, and I'm not like a fan of the series or anything. So. But ultimately, I think the goal is you want to have the items on each individual player's sheet be useful for driving both their plot forward, having them grow as characters, and then also the main plot. Maybe not every session, you still have to, you know, leave room for the big group scenes and mm -hmm. like story beats or whatever. But, you know, every couple of sessions you want you want to foreground somebody's individuality. If you manage to find something that ties into every single PC thing. Well more power to you if you do. <laughs> that is kind of the main plot when yeah. you found that though. Yeah. It's like, oh clearly this has to be part of it. It sounds, Josh, like I would guess that eventually whatever the main plot is becomes about yeah. what those characters are doing in your side scenes from the way that you describe your games. 
And you don't want anyone to feel like they're in a groove that they're not into for too long, you know? And you certainly don't want to lose track of the narrative threads. Like, if, if things mm-hmm. are getting out of control, you need to cut your losses. But you also, you want people to feel like they're the protagonist or at least a supporting protagonist as often as possible without being mm-hmm. trapped into the same sort of role for a single plot all the way through the Chronicle. Because that's bleak. Nobody wants to, like, do the same thing every session. Mm-hmm. Are you talking about a person being stuck following the main narrative as opposed to the opportunities to pursue their individual goals? Basically, yeah, being more reactive rather than active. I want players to make active Mm -hmm. choices more than just kind of, you know. And and also, but don't, if you have one player who's way more big on active and another player who's a lot more reactive seeming, don't make it all just the active character and ignore them. (laughs) Right. And it's a comfort level thing, too, because you have players who are new to the game or don't want the spotlight as much. Again, being careful about you don't want one player to try and suck up all the attention. You want to give everybody Mm -hmm. a chance to shine, but you also don't want to force them to shine if they're not ready. Yeah, but I mean, you can can also bring in, it's like, oh, you have some an NPC related to you who was your ally or something and whoever, and now that's a part of the game that doesn't necessarily mean even the wallflower could still be a wallflower while that's happening so what sort of player would be best for a significant one-off npc or a mortal specifically connected to one of the players something like that oh yes okay so like um having like a a guest player is what we're asking about is it that is right? yes i'm just Very awkwardly good. going down the topic slip. awkwardly transitioning just, you know so the um so I think a great way of doing this is having guest PCs. If you want to have somebody who's going to show up in a game and spice up a story something a little bit extra, you can bring people back. So I had a Mage the Ascension game, which was all about a group of mages going to hunt down long lost chantries here in Phoenix. Then I ran my Changeling the Dreaming campaign, which took place in the same city. Up to that point, they had nothing to do with each other. But during the changing arc, one of the PCs decided to use... She used some sort of magic which turned it from night to day in the area around their freehold. All the mortals in the area forgot about it soon enough. But I said, you know, it might be interesting if mages in the area retained that information for a bit longer. So I went to the people who played in my mage campaign... And said, hey, are any of you interested in coming back and guest starring? And I told them, here's the situation. This big pillar of light appears out of nowhere. And you find that when you're trying to investigate it, it's really hard. You find yourself having to remind yourselves and using magic to hold on to it. And a couple of them said, yeah, we we would love to do that. So I had them do some downtime stuff. Then I had them come into the next session. One of them was actually also playing Changeling, so we just had his main character doing something else for most of it. And he's been playing for a while, so he was good at like switching between the two. And then there was somebody who had, up to that point, only played in my mage game. And then we had fun with things like, the Changelings are dealing with these problems, they don't know how to solve them. And the mages like, oh, we can help you out with that, it's just magic, it's so easy. And, like, and then the mages were like, oh, we've got this thing going on. She was like, oh, well, we can help you out with that, we have a perspective on this. They helped a changing recover their lost soul. It, it was complicated. That person gone from being a red cap to having their face soul suppressed to having their face soul transformed into an avatar. 
that was a fun NPC. But the point of it was that the changing players got to see something cool that didn't fit the normal framework of their game, whereas the mage players got to pick up on a plot thread, like we've been discussing in, you know, interweaving stories, that they hadn't been able to fully resolve previously. And they also got to revisit some of their characters. That's all to say, I call this an advanced technique because you have to make sure that you coordinate players to make sure they're able to show up and they want to show up and that they can fit into the game. This ties back into the concept of having very mixed motleys too, because if you're going to have someone who's playing, you know, a kinane, you have to remember, okay, how do they interact with chimerical reality? What are the health level rules? What if you're, <laughs> you have the mage, you have to think, <laughs> what happens when they want to summon a spirit or use a portal that goes into the dreaming? My recommendation is to keep these things as simple as possible. Use the primary rules from the game that you know. Say as much of it works that way as you can. Use the other game's rules only if you're familiar with it and you want to deal with it. But if you're running changing, you're probably there to tell a story about changing. So everything should be subordinate to that. Make sure that you give the guest PCs some spotlight time while making sure that you don't subtract from what the other players would be doing. Going back to what you're saying about interweaving stories, make sure that you're doing that. Make sure that the guest PC isn't just showing up to tell a story about that PC. Mm -hmm. Figure out what they have to do with everything else. If somebody says, hey, wouldn't it be cool if my Duke from New York was visiting Phoenix? Okay, does anybody in the party have a title? Are there any noble people with titles in the main game? Great. Go ahead and mix those in. That's a good way of you telling a good story of a guest PC. I would just say that the other kind of guest PC that can happen is if you have someone who has absolutely never even looked at the game yeah. before and wants to try it out. And like, yeah. and they might, they might need a little bit more guidance as to what they're supposed to do. But I have found that when that has happened, players are generally very supportive and accommodating rather than yeah. oh, you don't even know what the kinane enchantment rules yeah. are or like whatever that's yeah, yeah I've, I've done that with like uh it might be somebody's dreamer it might be somebody's mm -hmm. enchanted retinue type person sometimes a chimera yeah that actually happens it doesn't make sense mechanically but they're like i want to play a flying cat <laughs> dragon thing just to okay. give them a feel for the world yeah I mean, somebody's chimera companion even but and keep the rules for them as simple as possible, especially if they're not sure about committing or it's their first time playing mm -hmm. the game or maybe even their first time role-playing. I like to tell people, yes, changing is like a 600-page book. All you really need to know for mechanically is roll some D10s and try to get a 6 or better. That's, that's yeah. it. Anyway, guest PCs can be fun. Make sure that you make the player feel welcome and make the rules as easy for them to follow and make them integrate as well as you possibly can. Now, what if one of your players has a story that they want to tell and it's a story that fits inside of your game? This is about guest GMing. I, I think of this as a high honor. If somebody says, oh my gosh, I have this really cool story, this adventure that would perfectly fit with what's going on. Can I run that? And I like to say yes when I can to something like that. Sometimes people want to do it because they just have a cool idea. Other times, you know, maybe they're new to GMing and they want to try it with a group of people they know in a setting that they know and love. Both of those are good motivations. 
when that comes up, your responsibility is to make sure that it meshes well with the kind of story that you're already telling and that you're still being fair to whatever their character's narrative is and the other players. So what will happen in a situation like this typically is that player will take on the role of the storyteller and then they will not play their character for that session or their character will become a storyteller character. Like you could have a situation where somebody's like, I'm an entitled Arcadian noble, and it'd be fun if I played out my responsibility to some people who serve under my freehold. I'd like to tell a story about them going to the dreaming and, and doing something. And then you as the normal storyteller would then take on a role in that. You don't have to, you could be like assistant GMing, but I think this is a good opportunity to see things from the other perspective in your own game. Mm. Also nice if you're, you know, the forever GM and you want to get a bit of experience on the other side of the screen. There's a couple of ways you can do that. You can make a brand new character. I personally find that to be a bit of a endeavor. But another fun thing to do is play one of your existing NPCs. Make sure that it's someone who you can feel comfortable going back to being a storyteller character and who fits with the group. You might say, oh, the, the motley is being sent to go deal with some, a strange motley, which is coming into town. You know what? Uh, I know this NPC who is a troll that protects the freehold. Normally they're an NPC, but what if I just played them? It makes sense for them to play the bodyguard going with the group. And then you just run that character for a scene, for a session and get back into things. I recommend that you talk with the player before they run the adventure. Like if they say something like, I'm going to have something where a group is coming into town and you're like, okay, but I already had a plot where that was going to happen. Or there's some interesting reason why that kind of thing can't be happening that I haven't told the group. Or maybe I have told the group, but this player didn't really get. You want to have a conversation with them about how to preserve their idea while respecting the boundaries of your own. You want to make sure that you understand how long they're going to be running it for. Most stories are one to three sessions long. I would like to think people would assume that, but you can run into a situation where somebody goes, gosh, this would take like eight or nine sessions to run. I don't think that'd be very common, mm. but please be aware of that possibility and make sure that other players feel welcome to it too. You want to tell the whole group about it. In part, because you want to make sure everybody understands that this is happening, that they're all comfortable with that person running, and also that they're okay with taking a break. Because if people are like, oh my gosh, this, this story is so exciting and I love it, and other things that make Fetch feel really good when she's running a game, you want to make sure that if you say, okay, Elaris over here is going to be running the next story for three sessions, we'll make sure one goes like, great, I'm down for that, as opposed to, Wait, but I was really excited about seeing what happened between my duke and, like, the dragon coming up. When, what, what about that story? Make sure you don't do it in the middle of your own stories. Oh, see, I'd be worried about the reverse. What's like, that? you get the guest GM and everybody's like, oh, we want to stick with this new story instead. <laughs> that would be my, my fear, my anxiety. But, yeah. I, I'm sure your players love you enough that that is not a concern. If they're willing to meet that often on a weekly basis... And someone is excited enough to want to GM. That's fair. Yes, yeah. GM. They're loving your game. If that situation happens, they can pick a different night. Uh, great. Uh, Saturdays are taken. Yep. 
How about you, Josh? Do you have any thoughts? Uh, yeah. I mean, the guest PC stuff definitely seen that. The the guest ST, I find that terrifying. <laughs> it really says something about me. You can pry my story out of my cold, dead ST. No, hands. but it'd be like, what if they like completely fuck it up? Sorry, but. <laughs> Yeah. This is what safety tools are for, yeah. in part. They're not yeah. just for when people make you uncomfortable with things they do. It's also when the player says, and then the dragon stabs the Duke of Phoenix. And you're like, yeah. wait, 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 what? A minute, wait a minute. No. Yeah. <laughs> I think that needs to be something that's clear to anybody who wants to guess to GM. You have to like be very specific. However invested you get in planning this out, once your guest sessions are over, I have free reign as the main ST to do whatever I want with what you've done. Mm-hmm. And they have to yeah. be okay with that. And from the other side, if you're interested in guest GMing, be sure to tell them about stuff which you're considering doing that might have a major impact mm-hmm. and try to avoid doing that. But if you have a really cool idea, go for it. There is nothing wrong with talking ideas. Just mm-hmm. you know, make sure that we're respecting the main oh, uh, storyteller, who is also the host of the game. Yeah, yeah, it definitely sounds like actually an interesting idea, uh, especially if I have a player interested. But it's just not something I've ever. It's it is fun. One last thing I want to say about that before moving on. I like to make a distinction between storyteller and game host. Mm. Normally, those are the same person. When you have a guest GM, that is not necessarily true. Like, I am always the host of the game, even when someone else is guest GMing. So I'm the person who's making sure that everyone's there on time. I'm the one who's making sure we're stopping at an appropriate time. I'm the one who's, you know, settling disputes or if something big comes up or being the one who needs to be most proactive when safety tools issues come up. Oftentimes people are going to be looking at you naturally, even if someone else is the storyteller. Mm-hmm. So be aware of that. You should be looking to keep those hosting responsibilities. Even if you don't, everyone else might assume that you are. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it sounds a lot like those, if you ever played any GMless slash GM full. Yes. Yeah. You, know, you still have a host, even though they're not taking on the DM storyteller duties. They're, they're still the host duties. Although I have also played at someone else's house and then that gets interesting. Who's the host of what? But... So I was going to say, if you're guest GMing, be sure not to like kill off any characters. That's just <laughs> good practice. <laughs> but that got me thinking a little bit about PC conflict and how you might yeah. want or not want that and how to handle it. Yeah. So this is going into similar themes. A lot of these, I think we're touching a lot on techniques that are described in a lot of storytelling games uh sorry story games not storytelling. Hmm. masks was referenced apocalypse world there's other things like that and this this is another one that shows up where the player characters do not always get along there's kind of this default contract just like never split the party is sort of like this default all the player characters are one group and maybe they little bicker a little bit but that's about it and that's fine if you want to play that game great it doesn't solve all interpersonal problems like I know I get frustrated if that is the sort of play contract, but player characters are abusing that a bit and they start like doing things that would really object with other player characters, Mm. but you're supposed to just ignore it like that. I don't like that aside. So one advantage is you can play characters that actually do very much disagree with each other. You can emulate stories more like that have multiple protagonists that don't get along. They might even be like each other's antagonists. And if that's interesting to you, that's the way to do it. There's a few ways depending on how your game is structured to do it. I'm going to take one that's very, uh, what I think of as the tabletop axis, not the LARP axis, as I was saying earlier. So the idea is, first of all, before you touch any of this, 
you need enthusiastic buy-in from everyone <laughs> when you're doing your session zero that this is going to be very some yes. people might not like that that's fine don't pressure them into it if the core concept of your chronicle is not liked by all the people who are interested in playing in it that's another story but make sure you only do this if everybody's on board make sure you have safety tools talked before about safety tools in other episodes and I think it's always needed, but this uh, definitely needs to be used here. Also, the split the party techniques that I was talking about earlier are going to be very important because antagonists definitely don't hang out with each other all the time. Well, eh. <laughs> courtly intrigue games. I Maybe. Mean. But even then, they'll go into like different corners or back rooms sometimes. Yeah, um, that's right. They won't necessarily share their plans with each other in a heartfelt tete-a-tete. Yeah. <laughs> yes. When, again, in, in talking about this play mode, Everything should be upfront for the players. You're not doing secret messages passed to the ST. You're not doing like downtime scenes not involving other people. Like have everything be at the table front and center. So the players see what's going on. That can lead to interesting dramatic irony. And if people are on board with this, you can get things where you're going to be backstabbing their character and they'll give you ideas on how to make it juicier and the knife go in <laughs> deeper, right? So any conflict should be in-game. Everybody should be, storyteller included, working together. And this is not as weird as people think because the storyteller does this traditionally in a game. The storyteller is portraying NPCs that are often, not always, but often in conflict with the PCs. And that's been fine. You kind of just need to take it and make the players have that same sort of slight detachment. And this might be a reason, some players don't like that, and this would be a valid reason not to do this. But the same way the storyteller is about their storyteller characters, be a little bit, bit like that with your PC, right? You're still playing your character. You're still responsible for that player character. But your happiness doesn't have to be tinged on your player character being happy. <laughs> it reminds me of a saying from uh, Ken and Robin talk about this stuff. Yeah. Where you might say the difference comes down to this, that uh, a lot of players say they want a simulationist game. And that's true. They just want to be a simulation of a game where they're winning. So yeah, I think the an important distinction between player versus player conflict versus player versus NPC is that when the NPCs are on the other side, oh, there's no, not an obligation that they lose. They're not the protagonist. So their power to influence the story mm -hmm. is not as big as to player characters. And when you have a power imbalance between the two of them, that can cause issues. So it's something you want to be aware of and to avoid. Yeah, yeah, that is another thing to be... I mean, that can also happen when they're working together. You get one player character sort of dominating and the other one's getting sidelined. That is even worse when mm. that domination is leading to killing the other player character or something like uh. that. And it doesn't work for all types of games. It doesn't work for whatever. But I think, yeah, the important thing, if you're going to do it, there's a whole other LARP approach or like secrets and powers or, or like bigger games like a mush or something. That, that That's a whole other story. But like for this style of games, you know, you have your three to five, maybe even two. Obviously, it can't be one on one. That doesn't really work. But <laughs> two to five player character players kind of thing. Everybody needs to work together to have fun. It might not be fun exactly, but it should get what they want out of it. It should be game. a good story at least. Yeah, it should be a good story. Right? It might be a very depressing story, but that's fine <laughs> if that's what you're going yeah, for. But... Some of the best stories are. Mm -hmm. And that does allow for, when you're talking before about playing more mixed motleys, or even even if you're still sticking to the core kiths, like less compatible player characters, like, you know, your Seely, Gwydion, Count. Like, wow, you could actually take title above two and have this work, potentially. Or... It's also good to remember the difference between competition and antagonism. 
Like, yeah. it's fine to have characters compete with each other. I mean, hell, in Changeling, you could have them joust and impale each other, and they'll wake up maybe in a few days, but probably fine. Yeah. So. Yeah, but I, what I want to get is, it's okay actually to even have the antagonism if if everyone's on board for that. Yeah. I'm curious. Are we talking about? Because I can see two ways that player character conflict can come up. Mm-hmm. One is at an angle where the characters have wildly different goals. Mm -hmm. And another one is where the player characters are directly in conflict with each other. Yeah, I'm sort of conflating both. I think the techniques are pretty similar for both. Usually when I've run games doing this type of thing, it's been more the in opposition sometimes and sometimes working together, that type of thing. But you could have a more dedicated, all the antagonists are the PCs (laughs) towards each other type of thing. I have a thought on how to have things at angles work together and i'd love to express that and then also hear your thoughts on how you actually make direct antagonism come up because it's going to come up in a game that i'll be playing soon yeah so in my changing the dreaming game the players were a mix of seely and unseely and one was even in the shadow court eventually but the reason they all kind of got along was because they had a greater situation they wanted to deal with, which was Mm -hmm. the Duke's kind of gone insane and decided that nobody is allowed in or out of the Freehold anymore because they're convinced that winter is coming to an end. That messes up all of our plans. So let's talk about how to work together to fix that because we all care about that. I've run Paranoia, which is a game where Mm -hmm. there can be a lot of conflict, but in that game... Although the players were all parts of different groups, they were all terrified of losing their positions of authority and being terminated. So they had to work together and cover for each other's failures when possible, right up until the very end when they knew everything could explode, because at that point it would no longer matter. Well, that's bleak. <laughs> it was a yeah, paranoia was, is pretty bleak. Yeah. Pretty I haven't game. played it, so. Yeah. The one I'm curious about is I heard you guys' podcast episode about the graphic novels, and I had been invited to join a game of the Die tabletop role playing <gasps> game. So yes, 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 brilliant. I got myself a freebie Kindle Unlimited subscription, and I sat down and literally just last night finished all four of the graphic novels, and now uh, we are putting together a group for Die, yes. and I'm like. Oh my gosh, this is so exciting. At the same time, I get anxious about direct player confrontation. When I first started playing role-playing games, whether it was LARP or tabletop, I ran into a lot of situations where I would say, hey, my character does this. And then players would go, well, great, our characters don't want you to do that, so they stop you. Or, you know, there's that right, kill your character. Now, there were a lot of problems with those games this was a time, in a time before we were using Lions and Veils. But the point still stands. I get anxious about jumping into games direct mm-hmm. conflict like this. And while I'm not saying it cannot be avoided in Die, that's also going to be an appeal for a lot of people. and Maybe even a big part of the fun. So what advice you guys got for me and the rest of the group and okay. other people who are going to be doing this? So I think uh, communication yeah (laughs) that's kind of the answer to a lot of this but (laughs) with the other players if you are feeling uncomfortable about what's happening you need to be able to actually talk to them out of character and say hey i'm not comfortable what's happening and talk it out 
and stop play until yeah. you talk to Devin. Like that's whatever mechanism safety tools or it, it, that is a piece that absolutely has to be part it's, of that. it's amazing how many problems that actually solves in in yes. game situations it's, like that but it's, yeah uh, basically all advice ever for anything is usually fitful yeah. sending multiple people and if you don't feel comfortable if the game like you got to talk to the people running the game people playing the game like if you're not feeling comfortable with that that's a big red flag but hopefully that's fine and you can actually talk it out and, and, and you know it's easier if you know if it's an established group of people that you know i also don't think it's your responsibility as a player to get your co-players to behave better i think you can certainly bring it up and communicate it but ultimately whoever's running the game has to be the one to tell people knock it off mm-hmm. and really hold their feet to the fire because often like player and character bleed when that happens in those kinds of circumstances, it's often things like, oh, well, I don't think that's a good idea. But their character might not care one way or another. So the storyteller mm-hmm. or game master or whatever term you prefer, they're the ones who should say, well, if you're going to try and stop this character from doing X, why would your character want to do that? And if they have a good in-character solid reason that makes sense and can fit into the narrative and help build the relationship between those characters... Yeah. I mean, that's that's a little bit more understandable. But for someone to just say, like, no, I don't like that. We're going to go do this other thing instead. And usually when they say that, it's we're going to follow my plan instead of yours. And that's just... Yeah, that, and that's not even... Right, that's, that's just... Like, player care. This player conflict that's not necessarily character That's just conflict. petty, is what that is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so. so how can players best communicate with each other to set up interesting yeah. conflicts that also make for a fun story for everyone yeah. at the table, including the storyteller. Set boundaries in advance and don't do it all the time. Yeah, but also like talk about it. Like, hey, I have an idea for this thing. It would cause, what do you think about that? <laughs> like, say that. Yeah, communicate. Yeah. But please let me know how that, that game goes because I haven't played in it yet. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I I will be sure to keep you appraised of it. I'm excellent. So figuring out what my character wants and what class they're going to be. Oh, take the Godbinder. Take the Godbinder. <laughs> but speaking of other games, yes, I was just about to say. My turn. Let us talk about borrowing rules from other tabletop role-playing games. So we're talking primarily about changing the dreaming. The game itself has been through a few editions. It's a game where I know on previous uh, episodes of the podcast, you guys have talked about what if you borrowed something from an earlier version of changing, like how banality used to work? Or what if we brought in rules from the Shining Hosts, like all the additional legacies? What I'm talking about, though, is what if you want to do something a little crazier than that? What if you want to pull something from a completely different game system why would you want to do that you're already running one game why do you want to take from another first of all you might think that the game is lacking some element that you really like changing the dreaming is a fun game i love it it is also based upon a game system that is over 30 years old at this point there have been advances You know, even within White Wolf slash Successor Studio Onyx Path Publishing, there's been changes where we've gone from World of Darkness to Chronicles of Darkness to Chronicles of Darkness 2nd Edition to Story Path to Story Path Ultra. 
Um, that's not to say anything about the other game systems out there, like Genesis or Fate or Powered by the Apocalypse or Forged in the Dark or a dozen other systems I can name, all of which have something that they add. Here's some examples that you might look for in a game like this. Changing, I think, does not really have a robust social system. It's mostly just, hey, here's a rule for a stare down. I think there's something for like a political conflict. But there's not really, what if you want to do more than just role play and make a die roll for somebody? Well, for that, maybe you go to Exalted, which has a system called Intimacies. And with Intimacies, you write down what your character cares about. You do that for every player character and NPC. And then you play a game about trying to discover what people's intimacies are, and you break down how you can influence them based upon their intimacies. So taking this in changing, for example, you might say that a noble Arcadian chi has an intimacy, I always fulfill my word. If you realize that about that character, you might get into a conversation with them and try to get them to promise you something. And then if they agree to it, you might, you know, if they give you some reluctance later on, like you said, hey, would you like help me welcome this motley in? And they go, sure. And then later on, they realize that that motley is like, ooh, they're all unseely commoners. You might make a persuasion rule upon them that says, this is what you care about. And you say you keep your word. So I'm invoking this. And then conversely, they might have a negative intimacy, like I hate commoners. They might drop on to make that role more difficult for you. Gwydion intensifies. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, the point is, whether it's adding granularity to social systems, or making your general roles more complex, or even just looking for a simpler way of doing something, borrowing from other systems can be a great way of doing it. Now, how do you do this? Uh, first off, ask yourself whether you really need it and why you want to do it. To make it easy, if you find yourself running Changing the Dreaming, like Dungeons and Dragons 5th uh, edition, I, I don't know, do you want to play Changeling? <laughs> or was there perhaps something else you would enjoy doing? If you just say, you know what? I love the combat system from Exalted Essence, and I want to bring that into Changeling. Ask yourself, why is combat so important that you want to bring in this awesome and elegant but complex combat system? Are you really going to use it that often? I don't know about you guys, but like combat doesn't come up very often in my games. You could do the work, and maybe you'd add something for that one moment, but do you really need it? Maybe not. You want to save these for things that you think are going to be important. So again, if a big part about your game is going to be, taking my campaign example, people believe that winter is coming and we want to convince them that that is not happening, then caring about what people care about could be a very important part about that game. So you want to borrow that system. I think it makes sense. And, and yeah, there is a lot of, like if your game is focused on a thing that's not in Changeling, but like this chronicle will be about it, like, I don't know, you're grabbing conspiracy rules from knights black agents or you want to grab like gumshoe investigation things and bolt it on more than just the bare bones investigation stuff in changeling or something like that and make sure you talk with your players about this before you do it if i'm running changing and 
you know, we get to the first social encounter and I say, all right, Surprise. now, what are your intimacies? <laughs> and you look at me and go, I don't know, Fetch, what you're talking about. And then I explain, oh, okay, it's the system from Exalted that we're using. You know, I didn't highlight it very much, but I mentioned it earlier. I think it'd be very understandable if a player said, I wasn't expecting that. I'm not ready for it. Can we just not do it? So be sure to have a conversation. And just as you explain to yourself why you want to do this, make sure you can explain it to your players. And they want to do it too. Yes. Make sure they want to do it. If someone said, I came here because I wanted to play Changing 20th Anniversary, and you say, no, we're doing it in Chronicles of Darkness entirely, they're going to go, I understand they went, well, never mind. Some favorite systems to use. Um, Forge in the Dark has clocks. I cannot remember if these also show up in Powered by the Apocalypse. The idea is that you track things that are happening over an extended period of time on something called a clock. In running my Beast of the Primordial game, the player characters were trying to break into the compound of a cult and free some kids who had been trapped there. The problem was that the compound had security. The kids might panic and run away. There was a supernatural antagonist that the characters weren't aware of, but I wanted the players to be aware existed. There was a primary antagonist who was going to go to ground if the players didn't deal with him soon enough. And the players had also invited a bunch of vampire bikers to help them break into the place. And guess what? They were going into a frenzy and going to attack every area on this. Wow, wow. Exactly. Now, that's a lot of fun. That is also at least five things to keep track of. <laughs> so what do we do? First, I broke the area down into a point crawl, which is where every location on the compound had its own thing going on. Uh, that's a concept I got from a game called Electric Bastion Land. And then I said, each one of these areas has a clock on it. So at the security gate, there's a six tick clock for the vampires going into a frenzy. And then a mysterious location, there's a six tick clock for the villain going to ground and getting away. And then over at this graveyard, I just want you guys to know there's a six tick clock for something terrible happens. I'm not going to tell you what, but you know, your characters might want to deal with that. And the others. Then I said, okay, deal with it. And the player shows where they wanted to go in. I asked for a die roll at each location. And every time they passed, they got to move on to a new location. And all of the clocks ticked. If they got an exceptional success, which is rolling five successes or more, then they got to decrease one of the clocks. And by doing this, it added a sense of pressure to the game while also keeping things organized. And they had to make creative selections on what they wanted to handle. Now, if all this sounds a little bit familiar, you might say, isn't that just extended actions? Yes, it is. They're just a little bit more refined. So you may want to use that if you're going to find yourself in a complicated situation where there's a lot to track either in a given scene or over extended periods. Like you can also use it for convincing somebody as of a political thing off in the background. So if say you're trying to convince the people of the freehold that winter is not coming and part of what you want to do is convince a pack of Lycians to come to your aid and be supportive, might have a clock for convincing them. And each tick of it might represent a different thing, like finding their location and plotting a course to get to them, talking with them, 
and then giving them something which will convince them to come with you. I couldn't go into more detail, but out of concern of running long, I will cut that there <laughs> and just give a couple other examples that are easy enough for uh, changing. One is complications and stunts. So success in changing is just you need one success, and that's typically all you need. Get through two, three, four, or five, and yay, you did it with style, which is great, but doesn't really mean anything. If you want to add some granularity, you can say you need only one success to get into this compound, but there's a one-point complication, the guards noticing you. So if you want to get in without them noticing you, you need to get two successes. Or you might say, nobody would notice you, but you can purchase a stunt. And this concept, by the way, comes from a story path. And the stunt is you overhear one of the guards revealing some cool piece of information. So if you get that extra success, you can spend it on that stunt. Final example, alternate XP advancement. The way experience advancement works in Changeling, it's on an escalating scale. So it rewards you for going in early on the things that you value the most, because otherwise it gets more expensive to raise them post-character creation. If you don't like that, you might want to use Milestone Advancement from Exalted Essence, where after accomplishing various kinds of goals, your characters can automatically pick a new art or get a new skill or increase an ability. Or you might take Flat Experience Advancement from Chronicles of Darkness, and say, if you suffer a health level to one of your wounded, you get a beat. If you defeat a major opponent, you get a beat. If you fulfill your legacy, you get a beat. If you get five of them, it turns into an experience point that you can then spend on advancing something. And it doesn't matter whether you're buying the first dot or the fifth dot, each thing costs the same amount. These are just some easy examples. How about you guys? How do you think about those examples or do you have any that you're really fond of? Um, One of mine is going to be a segue into my last topic, so Josh should go first. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, there's another one I've been exploring on how to do. It's sort of vaguely similar to Clock Beats, Um, the project system from Nobilis 3rd Edition, as sort of like a a structured replacement for... uh, I've never, I've never personally done this in a game besides that isn't Nobilis, but it's one I keep wanting to bring into Changeling or Mage, especially even, where it's giving a bit more structure around longer term projects and you get something kind of like XP, but it's like you have different projects that you're trying to advance, essentially, and you can put essentially your XP into it or on screen advances as well. So it's, it's essentially trying to move plot threads forward in that accomplish goals for your character by spending XP on it. But the way the game works is that's how character advancement works. Changing a trade on your character sheet is only done through this project system, if that makes sense. So it's a whole... So it might be something like, if I wanted my character to acquire wings, I might have to... It might involve a a quest, quest, which may be in or out of character happening, but the result is, by the end, they gain wings. Yeah, and you can have certain ways of advancing it on screen, as it will. We'll put points towards it, but you can also just put your points to just say you did that in the background. Oh, nice. So. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, but it would also be like, I want to raise my melee, <laughs> or I want to learn this new art, or whatever. All of it would be. But it'd also be like, I want to lower the banality of my whole Oh, area. man, that's that's a good one. I, I like that. Yeah. So yeah, that's, it's, it's sort of mulling in my head how to do it. 
that I think that nicely goes to the idea that you can do different systems for the same thing. It just depends on what mm -hmm. you want. Like that could be projects or that could be clocks from Forge yeah. in the Dark or something else. Yeah, they're not completely doing the same thing, but there's a lot of overlap. So it's, yeah. For me, I tend to just hand wave things a lot more. <laughs> so, but I think I, I do agree that as deep and complicated as some of these game systems might be, I mean, Changeling has hundreds and hundreds of thousands of words spilled on it. They are still skeletons that have plenty of room to flesh things out. And whenever I introduce new rules, I do always try to make them modular and optional. Just so like, if you are the kind of group playing the kind of game that needs to go in a certain direction where X thing needs to be fleshed out, here are some options. And I mean, even though I hand wave a lot, I have often thought about things like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to do milestone-based advancement? Or wouldn't it be cool to bring mm -hmm. in like V5? One of the one of the things that I'll, I'll grant to Vampire 5th Edition is that the Predator types, I thought was a brilliant idea mm -hmm. for that yep. game. And I'm like, yeah, I want musing and ravaging thresholds to have some kind of mechanical benefit, you know, or I would love to have paradigms of glamour, things like that. Yeah. There's sort of two ways you, you're either filling in or changing like exactly optional things, or I, I think it can also be okay to do more radical things, but you shouldn't be making the game more complicated than it already is. You could maybe pull out complication and replace that with something. Yes. Yes. Yeah. From outside of World of Darkness, and I'm going to shamelessly segue into my last topic here, <laughs> something that I've thought about doing, I'll say it here first, so that if I declare this as a Storyteller's Vault project in a couple months, this is where it came from. I've thought that something the Kinane in particular could use, but also just Changelings or the Fae-Blooded in general. So the old role-playing game Pendragon, where you play an Arthurian knight, in which I played on the bus many, many times in junior high, they had a built-in system for eventually your knight is going to age and die. But fortunately, one of your goals during winter downtime, they call it the winter session, is you're supposed to start a family. And so you make a new character who's the child of your knight. And then you play that character and you can do it as a solo game. So you can just have generation after generation after generation. And I'm like, those are mechanics I would like to see for Kinane or other mortals in Changeling. And maybe once every, you, you roll a 10 and suddenly you get a Changeling instead. So something like that feeds into the thing I want to talk about, which is the mortal side of Changeling the Dreaming. Because it is something that to me is one of the core themes of the game. And I, I'm dismayed when I see it neglected, when people are just all in on the dreaming side. And I do think part of that is because there aren't enough systems in place to kind of describe the mortal aspects of the world. Mm -hmm. So when I was putting together my notes for this, I was thinking about different ways that you could do that to kind of not force the issue necessarily, but give players some ground to stand on when it comes to incorporating more of the mortal stuff. In character creation, something I often do for, in particular, Mage, but I think could also work for Changeling, is starting with a mortal template. So rather than 753 for the attributes, you do 643. For the abilities, you do 1174 and cap them at 3. For backgrounds, you say, okay, take two dots, but they can't be in, like, treasure or chimera they have to be in things like resources or contacts and you do all that and then you go back and add the couple extra dots that bring you up to starting character level mm. but it gives you a grounding in your character's mortal side mechanically before you even say okay and now you've gone through your chrysalis that's what at least one e chronicles of darkness did 
Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. They do it in second edition, and they do it even more so in Story Path, which is explicitly, mm-hmm. here's your mortal life, and then you're... Like, exactly. And then you apply template. Exactly. Step five, apply template. <laughs> <laughs> actually, every Exalted Chronicle I run actually went that way too, weirdly. Like, we play mortals first. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And then exalt them later. <laughs> but I mean that's not that's not quite the same as you're talking about you're talking about just in the prelude but like right well at the session zero even I mean you just mm-hmm. and from the prelude side from the more narrative side you do kind of need to start before the chrysalis if you're going to do that which not everyone is into and frankly I think the chrysalis itself is much more interesting but getting those mortal based questions into the mix I think is as important to the character as what does your fey mean or whatever so you want to say things like how does your character pay the rent? How do they keep a roof over their head? How do they eat on a daily basis? How do they get to the freehold where they hang out? What mortals know them in their daily life? And if they don't have answers to any of those questions or don't care about answers to any of those questions, frankly, in previous editions, that's what Bedlam was there for. <laughs> mm-hmm. And now, speaking of mechanics that I would like to bring back into the game, you know, you you want to keep your player's feet to the fire a little bit and say like, well, okay, what do you have planned for your day? Where, where are you going to go? What do you plan to be doing? Even on a dreaming sanctioned quest, there will probably be some mortal interaction unless you're actually going into the dreaming very deeply. And mm-hmm. if they consistently do not seem to respond to it, I think dangling bedlam or maybe even just like saying things, you know, oh, the more time you spend ignoring your mortal side, the more solid your dreaming side gets, which means Chimera are going to notice you more, which means the ones that want to eat you are going to be paying more attention to you. So like, don't let them get away with ignoring the mortal side so much. That's the hard ass me saying. (laughs) Mm. I mean, I'm a bit like, I want to throw in next time I run it, the name's a bit weird by calling it Nightmare, Mm. but basically gaining Nightmare checks Yes. Like you're rolling banal uh, yes, periodically. Like so you take mm. you taking the old breadland warning checklist. Perfect. And those are now nightmare triggers. I mean not all of not uh-huh. all of them quite make sense. That's but interesting. Yeah, I have sort of a write up that I wanna try out. Publish but, it. But uh Yeah, I'd like <laughs> to see that. I am curious. Uh, so my concern would be with the approach you outlined, Puga, would be if you talk about like, hey, if you ignore your mortal life, you're going to suffer bedlam. Or these bad things will happen, which punish the character. Like, mm-hmm. my concern would be that are we ignoring the heart of the issue? Like, why isn't this player doing it? And will it be constructive to give them a downside if they keep doing it? I mean, clearly there's yes, sometimes yeah, when yeah. you want that. Because it's like, yeah, like, hey, if you do nothing but taxes, better. So, right. Uh, so that was that was the stick. Here's the carrot. <laughs> okay okay i i mean my sense from the games that i've been in the games that i've observed is the primary reason why players don't want to get into it is because they just don't find it interesting mm-hmm. so it's incumbent on you as a storyteller to tell stories involving their mortal sides that are just as interesting as dreaming stuff yeah. and it might be hard to do that you might have to put a lot more effort into making somebody's day job as interesting narratively as fighting a dragon but i think like kind of what i was talking about before about getting a sense of the npcs that they're engaged with or like knowing more about who their dreamers are i think that those are opportunities to to really get into some interesting narrative places Mm -hmm. and i mean going back to the thing about downtime scenes 
that's a space for you as a storyteller to test what will and will not work with individual players. I think epiphanies are a great way to explore different waters. I think, um, yeah, no, I won't, I won't keep listing examples. Yeah. I, I find this for me, a system as a storyteller helps a lot. If the system's good. It's like, yeah, in theory, we could freeform this whole thing. Mm -hmm. Not You're a bit more on the freeform end, Puka, I think, than the two of us. But you're, you're still not, like, going, yeah, let's just ignore these character sheets and these dice. Not and totally, no. But, no, you're, you're still using systems for reasons. Like, it, I, I don't want to completely freeform role-playing as my standard well, thing. Well, I yeah. like sheets, but I also like getting into the little crannies of sheets. I like creating situations where people can't cantrip their way out in particular yes and that to me is i want players to think, or cantrip your way out would just make it would you make it worse. one problem now you have seven yeah it's also important to remind players of common sense because common sense is a merit that not enough people take so mm, yeah. things like the camera is still going to see you approaching and leaving the building that got burgled and set on fire even if people mysteriously and mistily overlook how the door magically got busted open you're still going to have a warrant out for your arrest in your mortal scene. Yeah. So like that also drives home the point that you are in both worlds at once mm -hmm. and ignoring one of them entirely is not going to serve you well. Yeah. Chiefs looks great because of that. I think yeah. if you didn't want to have the mortal side, there's other games that do that better. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I I think going back to what do you guys, what do we talk about during session zero? Some good questions you can ask if you want to get that from the players early on. Ask them, what is your mortal life like? And mm -hmm. how has becoming Fae changed your life? And there should still be an answer which says what that's like. So, for example, you know, I have a, a puppy puka. And when he was a normal mortal, he was just like generic person, wouldn't really pick him up off the street. But then he undergoes the dream dance and sees a different reality and it kind of makes him uncomfortable in some way. People literally see him differently. He's feeling different mm -hmm. behaviors. So he tries to keep the two lives separate, but he has an act in moral life where he does ghost tours. Thanks. I will say also things that the game provides that I don't think are useful in and of themselves, even though it seems like they should be for hashing this out. I don't think Kinane are actually useful even though it says, oh, mm -hmm. it gives you a mortal perspective. I disagree. Mm -hmm. Or if you do use Kinane, read the Enchanted cover to cover so you can make them actual people. I think I think even even the Enchanted, it's like, I like it better in C20, but I still could be more. Yeah, anyway. but there's not enough yeah. depth. Yeah. I don't think Autumn people on their own are useful for kind of driving this point home. Because what I want players to understand is that keeping one foot in the Autumn is like the least dangerous version of what humanity can become. Maybe that's what the autumn people are good yeah. for, but like as yeah. a tie to your mortal side, it's like, no, they're the exception. Yeah. If the autumn people come out, that just tells you stop playing in the autumn world, go back to the tree. Yeah. <laughs> and as much as I can be a hard ass about bedlam, I also don't think being a hard ass about banality actually helps. I mean, I am a hard ass about banality, but not to illustrate the sort of necessity of mortality. Banality is meant to illustrate the fragility of glamour. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I want to show that mortal life doesn't need to be banal, or at least not hopelessly banal, mm -hmm. maybe more banal. But I think part of that comes from when I think about what changeling means to me as a game and what it has meant to me as a person in my life. I do see it as a system that models things that I want to live. I think one of the most important lessons it can teach is that 
you can bring glamour into your life outside of the game. And that mm -hmm. I want to find the reflection of that. I want players playing changelings to say, oh, some of this mortal stuff in moderation isn't actually that boring or bad to explore. I think a few good ways of doing that, kind of going with your point. One, ask those questions. Two, look for opportunities on the character sheet. Like if nobody has mundane mortal contacts, maybe suggest give that. Give them one. <laughs> give, give them one. Just say, you know, you, you know some bartenders. It's yeah. cool, guys. It's yeah. one freebie point. Just and hand then it highlight, out. highlight situations too where that's handy. Yeah. Like actually have situations where they're rolling contacts. Like, wow, you were the one who solved this problem that way, right? In V5, there's the touchstone, is it? Where like every vampire needs yeah. a mortal. Yep, you have to have a, a, a mortal. And believe it or not, remind players like, your mortal friends don't have to be enchanted. Right. Your dreamer can just be somebody that you know, or your character might be roommates with somebody who's not a dreamer. They're just the person yep. who pays the other half of the rent, and you have to occasionally hide your fairy stuff from. It's like, what are you doing in that bathroom? Nothing. Frantically shape-changing back. Well, that, that's about to, like every level of resources can justify this type of mortal interaction, too, from zero to five. Like, mm -hmm. there's strings there all, yep. these, all the way through that. You can also emphasize the challenges that, like, in your game, the people who go too far into the fate part have. You know, if you want to subtly dissuade players from neglecting their mortal side, introduce them to some noble she who is like, okay, so I need you guys to go down to that uh, cultural center and just, just close it because there's too much banality going on there. And you're like, that's like comic con and like right. half of it's good stuff no 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 there, there's far too many foul lane and their bender hall is you know i don't i don't get this stuff get rid of it and this is why we need glamour paradigms except not really <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah absolutely yeah should we, we uh, get to any questions yeah what mailbag stuff do we have <laughs> well so Elris asked about downtime scenes and count clockwise asked about mortal sides so i think we kind of handled those at length yeah. And the downtime seems like we handled two different ways. Yeah. So then Ferret asked about how to advertise games when not running with a known group, which kind of, mm -hmm. I think, sparked us thinking about table issues in general, which are just sort of the nitty gritty planning things. And maybe we just do a couple rapid fire things we wanted to mention. Join your local LARP and then you'll have a bunch of people who want to play in your tabletop. <laughs> yeah, but then you have to LARP. <laughs> That's not a totally serious answer, but it has worked in the past. <laughs> something that's worked for me because i do pretty much all of my gaming on discord uh so for advertising the game i recommend that you post on the server or servers most relevant to the game so for example for changing the dreaming posting on the changing the podcast server posting on the onyx path publishing server there's a World of Darkness server I've not been part of that possibly posting there. That tends to be more V5-oriented. If you have any community servers where people are looking for games, posting on there as well. When you make the post, make sure that it's outlining what the game is about, when you're going to play, how many players you're looking for, any special rules that you want to call in, and the format for the game. Also, I find it helpful to mention that you're using safety tools. I think it keeps out people who would not want safety tools, which are people you probably don't want to play with anyway. There was another question there by Ferret. How do you run a game that's less micro-oriented? I think that getting examples of that would be helpful to address mm -hmm. the specific 
But I think if you yeah. just worried about like every little detail about the game, just remind yourself that you can always go yeah. back to the most basic of basics when running. Oh, I thought it was a completely different question. I thought it was like when the game sessions divulge into it. I'm like, well, that's where you do pacing and, and jump ahead. And- that That's the other thing. They might be talking about pacing. And I guess the biggest thing I could say there would be just make sure you respect your session time and also set a goal for how much you want to accomplish. So I tend to say... I'm going to run this story and it will be done in three sessions. I don't know how it's going to go, but I know it will be done in three sessions. I tend to go like, you know what? There's no reason we can't go, okay, let's uh, skip ahead two days or something when it makes sense. I find there's a lot of like grinding into specifics. Maybe that's just why I read that that way. I'm not qualified to talk about how to be less micro-oriented because I'm extremely micro-oriented. I've told this anecdote many times, but it's... It's not a D&D game until you've plotted out the rules of poetry slams for the tribe of elves mm. that your party is about to encounter. Yeah, my, my planning entirely, almost entirely consists of making NPC character sheets. But I do a lot of that, including NPCs who never show up in the game. In terms of finding players, though, just to go back to that for a minute, I did want to say one thing about scheduling that I think ties back into ties into the question as well about how micro to get, how how deep to plan, and the interweaving I was talking about. So one of the more common problems, I would say, is getting everybody to meet at the same time on the same day, once a week, if you're extremely lucky. So when you have scheduling snafus like that, often what I end up doing is building what one of my former GMs used to call trapdoors into the plot. It's not quite episodic in the sense of there is an overarching plot line, But having the space for the individual character arcs and the side plots makes it kind of less necessary for everybody to be Mm -hmm. there the whole time, every single session. And I try to organize the sessions to start and end at like a save point, more or less, so that a character can dip in or dip out if the player can't make it the following week or whatever. So as long as you kind of have your side and individual plots ready to deploy if needed, I think that that maybe doesn't help necessarily with recruitment, but helps sustain yeah. a game. And tying back into our episode in, television episode inspirations, watch Deep Space Nine. They do a good uh, ongoing story arc, but then yes. you know you might have an episode that just doesn't have one of the main characters there, and that's fine. Luis Armander left a comment on the Discord, normalize stealing stories from your favorite yeah. media, and that is case in point. Absolutely love that. As an addendum to that, I remember a beautiful piece of advice from the... Um, vampire revised era storytelling guy yeah so they had a point where they're like this is like very like 90s they're like so i get that you want to play a character who wears all black and calls themselves the raven but maybe instead of just literally ripping off the crow ask yourself what do you like about that story and that character and then do your own spin on it and i say do the same thing with what you Mm -hmm. take from I use a lot of elements taken pretty much directly from other material, but I always try to adjust it mm-hmm. so that I'm putting my own spin on it. Or sometimes you just have Pokemon show up in the Parliament of Dreams. Mm-hmm. Yay. So, yeah. We've, you've learned all of Advanced Team. There's nothing else to learn. <laughs> so, have we said enough? <laughs> that's a course, yeah. course complete. Yeah, wait till we do the... This is part one. Yeah. We'll eventually get to grad, like, you're like a seminars for your thesis or something anyway (laughs) 
Is there anywhere people can uh, talk to you or find you online that you'd want to? Certainly. So for one, I am on the Changeling the Podcast Discord. I am very friendly. I love chatting. So if you ever want to ask me about anything that we've discussed here today or a related matter, feel free to ping me. I love chatting. I also have a Discord where I run games. I would love to see some of you there. It is not just changing the dreaming. It's whatever I'm currently inspired to play, which can be just about anything. Some are short-term games. Some are massive campaigns. Drop on by. Uh, You can find the link to my Discord server in the Looking for Game channel on Changing the Podcast's Discord server. And also in the show notes to this episode. And in the show notes to this episode, indeed. How's that? You didn't have any of the projects you wanted to show, right? I don't have any projects that I'm working on. There's that Lost in Dreams concept, but we'll see if that ever actually turns into something fully written out. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, you can uh, find us at uh, changelingthepodcast.com. You can send us an email, podcast at changelingthepodcast.com. You can join our Discord, where you can not just chat with me and Puka, but also with Fetch. Discord.me slash CTP. You can send us a toot on Mastodon, changelingpod at dice.camp. You can follow us on Facebook, uh, Changeling the Podcast. You can also check out our YouTube channel, Changeling the Podcast. Links to all of these will also be provided in the show notes. And once again, I'm Josh. I remain Puka. And I have been Fetch. And if you can't be a storyteller, at least be a glory yeller. Can I get a kapla? Kapla! We regret to inform our listeners that, after extensive research, we've determined there is no accredited graduate program in tabletop storytelling. Our repeated inquiries to both Arcadia University, located outside of Philadelphia, and Concordia University, located in Montreal, were met with confusion and derision, even though we explained that we were merely seeking to address a need in our respective local communities. Furthermore, neither school appreciated our attempts to enchant the higher administration, so we are now compelled to fulfill a less fun kind of community service. In any case, if you liked this episode and want to hear more such content, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast listening platform, and or tell your friends, loved ones, and unholy cohorts about our show. You can also support us at our Patreon by visiting www.patreon.com changelingthepodcast, thereby joining the hallowed ranks of luminaries such as Derek, Dorkadus, Oreo, Roz Caboose, Sandshaker, Sija, Terry Robinson, and Tricerabeth. Much appreciation to these folks for contributing. Many thanks to you for listening, and until next time, keep on dreaming. Here come the outtakes. That's actually a standard LARP thing, like from Vampire LARPs is, oh, well, you're not sure what Vampire LARP is, come play somebody's ghoul. Okay, I thought you meant bring your kids to Vampire LARP. No, no, no. no. I was like, oh. That's a bit different. I, I no, don't know. I don't know that we can condone that on this. No, podcast. no, I don't think that. No, that's not what I was going for. <laughs> I apologize, by the way, for the ice cream truck that's currently parked that's outside. I was curious. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yeah, I might just, uh, I might just hold my tongue for a minute. <laughs> <laughs>